Hey everyone, this is Dave, and like I promised last week, today I'm going to be doing a bridge episode. So, if you've been listening to the show, you would know that I've done a couple series now, one on the rise of Adolf Hitler to the Chancellorship of Germany, and then one as well on Japan's decision to attack Pearl Harbor in 1941. And I hope you've listened to those and I hope you've enjoyed them. And uh, feel free now to take a listen if you haven't. But you also don't have to have listened. If you want to start listening now, I think you'll pick up on what it is I'm trying to say and what it is I'm trying to do. So last week I promised I would do a bridge episode where I would explain sort of how I am connecting all of the series that I'm doing moving forward. And so what I wanted to do today was to explain how the first two series I've done connect to the series that I'm going to be doing starting next month. And that series is the July crisis of 1914. Now, what is this? Um, I'm sure some of you have heard of this, but it's actually not quite as well known as a lot of the stuff around World War II. And really what this is, is there was a month where Europe came to increasingly know that a big war was about to break out and that war would be World War I. And it's through this month where we slowly build to that point where it's an, it's, it almost seems like an inevitable march towards boots on the ground, towards uh, shots being fired, towards invasions, etc., etc. And although the, leader, the, the leaders of the various European countries, or if you want to, there is also the, there's also empires, and uh, it's a time of mixing forms of political government. These leaders, uh, some of them are in denial that what's about to happen, others are excited about what's about to happen, but really it's a whole month of this, and it all starts with the assassination of Franz Ferdinand on June 28th, and again we're talking about 1914, and it ends at the very beginning of August when Germany invades Belgium and then invades France, and we're off to the races with World War I. So what happens over this, over this month? And that, you know, that's what we'll be exploring in my next series. And I'm putting that together now. I'm doing the research now, and I'm you know, trying to decide if I want to do a more free-flowing type of conversation like I'm doing now, or if I want to make it more scripted. I think it'll end up being a mix of both. But, we'll, but yeah, that's what I'm doing now. And so for today, I wanted to explain why I'm deciding to do this series on the back of the two series I've already done. And of course, the two series I've already done are some of the key moments that lead to the crisis of World War II. First, I did how Hitler rose to the chancellorship of Germany. And of course, this is important because, you know, you probably don't have World War II without... Adolf Hitler, at least he probably don't have the European front of World War II. Of course, Hitler brings about World War II because, to put it bluntly, because of his aggression. It's kind of funny, all along, Hitler's plans were, were known to, could have been known to everyone. He kind of laid them out in Mein Kampf, in the book he wrote while he was in Landsberg prison, uh, when he was imprisoned for his part in the Putsch, in the Putsch of 1923. And while he's in prison, he writes this book called Mein Kampf, and in it, he kind of lays out his political awakening, if you will. 
he also lays out what he would do if he was in charge. And so it's kind of funny to me as I read the history where he's kind of said what it is he wants to do. And yet all along when he's leader in the 1930s, there's still people who don't really know. They act like they don't know what he's doing. They try to appease him. That's, of course, the the infamous word that gets thrown around called appeasement. And appeasement, of course, refers to the fact when Germany threatens to invade and actually does invade places like Austria, you know, instead of actually standing up for the rights of the Austrians and the, the, the government leaders of Czechoslovakia and other places, instead of actually standing up and actually uh, defending them, the allies appease Hitler, thinking that if we just give him a little bit he's going to eventually not want any more. But of course, the funny thing to me as I look back on this is he lays out what it is he wants all the way back in 1923. And he does this in Mein Kampf. And in the most telling uh, parts of the book, he talks about this thing called Lebensraum, which is a German word for German word for living space. And it's this vision that he has where the German people need more space to have a thriving society that Germany has always been constrained by enemies all around her and there isn't enough space for Germany to create its own food and to provide for itself. And so what should Germany do? Well, they should look eastward because, of course, the in Hitler's uh, vision of the world, the Aryan race is superior to the to the Jews and the Slavs and all the other all the other minority groups, all the other non-white groups. Uh, east of Germany. And so if Germany expands, you know, through what is now Poland and Belarus and Ukraine, and then of course into Western Russia, to the Caucasus, Germany can create an empire and create all this room for German settlers to come move and to create farms. And it's this whole vision that Hitler has for the future of his country. Uh, the trouble that, uh, of course, Germany would run into as they actually set about implementing this plan was what to do with the people that were already there. Of course, they end up resorting to mass murder in, a, in an attempt to clear the space for Germans to come settle. But nevertheless, to get back on point, if people had really taken Hitler at his word in Mein Kampf, they would know this is what he planned all along. So when Hitler becomes chancellor in Germany, he sort of systematically sets about putting this plan into motion. He becomes chancellor in 1933, and then things settle down by the middle of the decade after an intense period of of Hitler consolidating his power. And then by 1937, 1938, you you start seeing Hitler putting this plan into motion. First he solidifies, or first he expands into Austria and Czechoslovakia, to not only get more resources for Germany and to reunite, this is a big thing for him too, to reunite the German-speaking people and the German ethnic people of these areas into the German Empire. But it also solidifies potential enemies when he starts wanting to expand militarily, and he does this without even having to fire one rifle. And then, of course, he invades Poland, and, and now he actually has to start using bullets. And to get a little bit into Hitler's psyche, it's at this point that he actually kind of gets more what he wants. He always felt that the appeasement policy kind of robbed him, if you will, 
of a war that he wanted. He kind of had this vision of war that it was good for the German men and that it was in his sort of bloodlust vision for the world. He, he liked war in a sense and he wanted his revenge quote unquote on, on these certain people. And he wanted to take, be the, the glorious victor in battle, so to speak. And anyways, so he didn't get that in the on un, and I'm horribly mispronouncing that word, but, uh, the German, um, invasion of Austria. And then of course, uh, in Czechoslovakia, this something similar happens, but in Poland in 1939, this is kind of when we get, when we kind of get the consensus about when it is that World War II starts and, and Hitler invades Poland in September of 1939 and then before he does really what it is he's been wanting to do all along, which is attack Russia for, for living space, he wants to solidify his Western front. He doesn't want to fight a war on two fronts, which was, of course, famous for why Germany failed in World War I because it ended up fighting a war on two fronts. So he wanted to avoid this. So he uh, briefly solidified his Eastern front with a neutrality pact with Russia, and then he attacks France takes down France and is going to do it the same to Britain. Of course, Britain holds strong in the Battle of Britain in a major aerial uh, warfare. No mind that he has, while he hasn't taken over Britain, he's at least neutralized any sort of threat of a Western invasion of Germany. So he doesn't, he no longer has his war on two fronts. And this is when he decides to invade Russia. And I'm getting a little off track here. But the major point is that uh, Hitler becoming chancellor led to all this. It kind of put the steps in motion for all of this to happen. And that's why I focused on the key moments of when Hitler became chancellor. Because to me, this is kind of the point at which none of these things are going to stop. But surprisingly, as I read the history, there were moments where it was unclear if Hitler was ever going to become chancellor. And that's what I focused on. And then, of course, the other aspect of World War II that I focused on was the Pacific theater of the war. And this was the build-up to Pearl Harbor. And, of course, when Japan attacks Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941, this is really when the Pacific theater of the war starts. This was a bit of history, actually, that I had not known nearly as much about. The Pacific theater of World War II was always something to me that was that was more diff- that never quite made as much sense to me. World War II in the European theater is kind of these clear sort of strategic objectives, clear reasons for war, if you will. It was a natural aggressor in Germany and a natural set of countries defending themselves and the allies, and you had the good guys stepping up to take down an evil Nazi regime that wanted to uh, expand its empire and murder people it didn't like. So there's clarity in the objectives and in the right and wrong. And the Western Pacific, the Western Front, excuse me, in the Pacific theater of World War II, the strategic objectives were always a little, as someone who, you know, read history in high school, etc., I I never quite fully grasped it as much as I did the European theater. But it was really fun uh, trying 
researching all that and trying to figure it out. And I hope I was able to at least help you better understand, you know, why it was there was a major battle in the Pacific. And of course, kind of what it came down to was uh, a similar situation with Japan trying to expand its empire for, for natural resources because it felt that it was kind of this constrained island, small, that wasn't big enough for to take care of its own people. And so you had Japan uh, actually more slowly expanding its empire through the first, first 30 years of the 20th century. Um, you get the Japan who takes over Korea, and then in the 30s, you know, they take over Manchuria, and this is when it really starts to heat up, and then you have America kind of playing the role, if you will, of Britain in Europe, uh, when Britain, you know, was the country that could stop, sort of stop Germany from expanding. You had America playing a similar role in the Pacific theater as the threat to keep Japan from expanding in the Pacific. And the re- one of the primary reasons for this were uh, economic. America had a vision for trade with East Asia that uh, a Japanese empire would threaten. Yeah, there were a lot of natural resources that Japan got. Oil, rubber, tin, you know, especially in Southeast Asia, these are places that are rich with this type of with these types of materials and these resources and America wanted to be sure that they would that there would be free trade with these areas and if, like I said before Japan threatened this so it was economic but it was also ideological you know uh, the Japanese the build up to the Pacific theater was a couple of years behind the build up to the European theater of World War II. And so as America starts thinking about how Japan expands, they can't help but compare them to Nazi Germany. And of course, the the Roosevelt administration, President FDR is is leader of America at this time. His administration hates the Nazis, and obviously it's easy for us to look back now and, and see why they would. I think in the time it was a little more difficult because a lot of the atrocities of the Nazis weren't quite as, as on display as, as, as we know them today. But still FDR had the foresight and the vision of his administration to see the Nazi regime for the, for the evil that it truly was. And in a sense, you know, it wasn't too difficult because a lot of the stuff they had said about the Jews were very public. But still, you know, give credit to FDR for for seeing the Nazis in this way. And so when Japan is aggressive and it's really militaristic style and, you know, you got the marching soldiers and you have some of the rituals, et cetera, et cetera, you know, and you have the aggression and the expansion and the the bombacity of some of the statements that are being made, you know, you, I see why it will be easy to compare them to Nazi Germany. And so they kind of get lumped in with this and in many ways it's right of course there's a there's a pretty vast scholarly debate about whether or not japan in this time its political system could be considered fascism and i won't and i won't go down that road although although that's a topic that does interest me it's not it's neither here nor there for today but nevertheless America compares Japan to to Nazi Germany. 
And so it was an ideological reason for America to get to get in Japan's way as they expanded. A big thing America said, and I'm kind of using America loosely here, a lot of this was Secretary of State Cordell Hall, like I talked about a lot in my second series, but they talked a lot about countries having the right to determine for themselves who they are. And they wanted Japan to sign on to agree with this in their intense rounds of negotiations. And a lot of this had to do with the fact that Japanese was expanding and kind of taking over a lot of East Asia. And so they, they, America wanted Japan to take a step back and agree that countries had the right to self-determination. And so it was ideological. America saw itself as a defender of liberalism. And I'm using the liberalism with a small l there. Liberalism meaning more the defense of personal rights and liberties, uh, the defense of democracy. And of course, America didn't see Japan or Nazi Germany as liberal democracy. They didn't see themselves in this way. They kind of, especially Germany, kind of laughed at the thought of a liberal democracy, not making fun of it, seeing it not as a, an effective form of government. And so it was ideological to, to keep in check a growing Japanese menace. And so ideology, the economy, trade, these are the reasons that America sort of steps in. And then you can listen to my podcast and you can hear about all what happens in 1941 and about how America and Japan go back and forth and back and forth. But in reality, there really isn't much progress being made at all. And next thing you know, boom, you have Pearl Harbor. And the Pacific Theater of World War II is off and running. And that's, those are my two series. And so the question for today is, how did World War I influence these things? And it's much easier to draw connections between World War I and World War II for the European theater of World War II. And this is largely because the outcome of World War I leads to Germany feeling like it, has, it is being persecuted as a country. And it leads to feelings of resentment and victimization. And it opens the door for a leader like Hitler, a strong man, to speak to these German concerns. And so what do I mean by this? At the end of World War I, Europe is in tatters and the Allies are victorious. And they want to find someone to pin this terrible thing on. And this terrible thing was the not only the millions of lives that were lost in World War I, but it was the terror of the war. It was, it was the type of fighting that happened. It was the poverty and starvation that happened in countries because of the, the lack of um, economic strength in the middle of a war that you had countries like Germany that were under blockade and you had citizens who were starving to death. And so it's just an awful time. And so the, the leaders of the countries involved in the war all get together in Versailles, outside Paris, and they try to come up, come up with a, a document to figure out what happened. And there's an infamous section of this document, section 231, which pins the war on Germany and pins the cause of the war on Germany 
And this actually is going to be a big theme of my next series on the July crisis of 1914, which is to say, who is responsible? Who is responsible for World War I? And this is not only just an interesting scholarly question to figure out what actually happened in history, but it's important because this becomes the one of the main sparks of World War II, is this idea that Germany is responsible for starting World War I. And I don't, by the way, I, there's not really one clear answer to this question of who started World War I, and that's why it causes so much scholarly debate. And that you'll see as I start going through this series on the July crisis of 1914, I think there's plenty of blame to go around for all the countries involved. But nevertheless, Germany kind of gets pinned with it at the end of World War I. And not only is there the emotional and ideological weight, the burden placed on German soldiers. So the idea that, hey, Germany... You should feel guilty about this. You're the one who caused this, and so you need to check yourself. There's also economic sanctions put on Germany as reparations for the war to pay back the Allies for the cost of World War I. And this becomes a huge thing for Germany in the build-up to the Hitler Chancellorship. And I mentioned this a little bit. I mentioned this a little bit in my first series on Hitler's rise to the chancellorship, and you can go back and listen to that series if you missed it. But this is one of the biggest reasons that Hitler becomes chancellor is because he speaks to many in German society who feel that this is unfair, that they have to, that somehow they're responsible for World War One, and so they have to. Germany, all of Germany, has to pay bear this burden. And of course, you know, the Allies restructure this German debt um, a few times over the course of the 20s, and it kind of changes how much Germany is owed, but yet it's still sort of sitting there, this this uh, elephant in the room in German politics in this time period. And so this is why this question of who is responsible for World War One is so important, is because it has these massive ramifications for the 20s and 30s. It has ramifications for how World War II came about, how a Hitler chancellorship came about, and this is why I'm going to be looking at the July crisis of 1914 in my next series, because I think it really fits in nicely into what I've already done. And as I've been saying, this is very clear for the build-up to the European theater of World War II. You have Hitler who campaigns on the atrocity of the Versailles Treaty, of the, quote, war guilt lie. And that's a common phrase that's used. Uh, it's a common phrase that's used to, to describe the Versailles Treaty and the section it had that blames Germany for the outbreak of World War I. But not, not only is, it, uh, relate, is, is the Versailles Treaty and the end of World War I related for these political campaign slogans and these campaign points that Hitler and the Nazis use. But it also really matters because of how Europe was partitioned at the end of World War I, how the different countries were formed. And for example, Poland is made a country at the end of World War I. Uh, before it had been part of the, Rus- the Russian Empire, 
but it's made a country. And as part of the conclusion to World War One and the partitioning of these countries, Poland is given this thing called the Polish Corridor, which cuts right through German territory up to the Baltic. And it's, it's put in place so Poland will be able to have access to a seaport, which of course is very important for its trade and economics. But the issue is, is that it cuts right through Germany. And of course, like a lot of things in this time, uh, this makes Hitler mad. And this actually makes many Germans mad. And this is one of the reasons Hitler invades Poland and starts World War II, is that he wants to get rid of this Polish corridor, which separates German, the German country in two. And so not only do you have the war guilt lie, quote-unquote, but you also have geopolitical... The, you also have a European map that's put in place to that naturally creates conflict. And that's what you get at the end of World War I that helps lead to World War II. And so for these reasons, it's easy to see the direct connections between World War I and World War II in the European theater. And so far, mostly, I focused on the European roots of World War II being laid at the end of World War I. And, of course, the European roots, when compared to the Pacific roots of World War II, are much easier. It's much easier to find them in World War I in Europe than it is in the Pacific. However, that doesn't mean that there aren't connections. There aren't connections to uh, the outcome of World War I affecting the build-up to Pearl Harbor, of course, which was my second series. And of course, these connections can be found in the Tripartite Pact, which is something that I talked about in my second series. And this, of course, was the agreement that Nazi Germany signed with Japan and Italy. And the three of them formed an alliance in the Second World War. So, you know, the, the question remains how much of an impact the Tripartite Pact actually made on the Pacific theater of World War II. And in terms of boots on the ground or real-world consequences of, in terms of the battles, you know, Nazi Germany never fought in the Pacific, so it's hard, or it, neither did Italy, so it's hard to say it had a real impact once the war started. However, where it had its impact was, was in the build-up to Pearl Harbor. I've already addressed this briefly, but it was in the way that the Americans didn't trust Japan because they viewed Japan as sort of a potential Nazi Germany of East Asia. And a big part of this was uh, ideological, but it was also because of the tripartite pact. America hated it when Japan signed this because, of course, they saw Nazi Germany as the enemy. So for Japan to be an ally with Nazi Germany was a big deterrent to any sort of peaceful negotiation or peaceful settlement between America and Japan in 1941. And so in this way, it helped bring about war because America always distrusted Japan, worried that Nazi Germany would directly ask for Japanese aid or vice versa, and also just more prevalently just the idea of this, the idea of not trusting Japan because, because it threw its weight in with an evil empire. So this is partly how World War I affects World War II in the Pacific. To draw the connection, you don't have Nazi Germany without World War I, and then you probably have better relations between 
Japan and America without a tripartite pact. And of course, I know I'm speaking in more looser connections here, and I'm not trying to overstate my case. I'm just trying to draw the things that connect the, connect the series, connect the, draw the dots between world events. The other ways in which the outcome of World War I affects the Pacific theater of World War II is simply the breakup of colonial, is simply the breakup of colonialism at the end of World War I. You know, this is something that happens throughout the first half of the 20th century. It isn't just at the end of the First World War, but the large colonial powers get broken up in this century. Of course, you have the British Empire that gets broken up um, and all of the other Western European countries. And they had, France, of course, had stake in, in Southeast Asia, as did the Dutch. And this colonial territory was a big part of Japanese aggression in the first half of the 20th century. Japan saw itself as a liberator of Asian people by wanting to kick out the Western, the Western European colonizers. And then another way that the outcome of World War I affects the build-up to World War II in the Pacific is the failure of the League of Nations. The League of Nations was a precursor to the United Nations, what we know better today. And it was put in place after the disaster of the First World War to make sure something to make sure something like that never happened again. However, it was a it didn't really work that well. And a case in point was Japan leaving the League of Nations in the 1930s. And this sort of signaled a Japanese aggression towards the rest of the world. And the League of Nations ultimately failed to rein in Japan and some of the ways that they had expanded into places like Manchuria in the 1930s. And the League of Nations failed to, to settle the issue. So these are some more of the tenuous connections between the end of the First World War and the Pacific theater of World War II. But overall, I do think that it's important to draw these connections because the 20th century has these tension points throughout. And on this, in the first, uh, now that after I start my World War I series, the first three series of this podcast is going to be focusing on, on those and then is going to be focusing on these tension points. And so it's important to show how, the, how the, all of it fits together. You have World War I directly leading to the European theater of World War II, which in turn affects the Pacific theater of World War II. And if you want to keep going... The outcome of World War II directly sets up the second half of the 20th century, even to where we are today, with the geopolitical setup that's out there today. All of the alliances and the differences in ideology, you know, these kinds of things. World War II, the outcome of World War II directly leads to a buildup in American, in American arms and in the American presence around the world. And of course, most directly, the end of World War II directly sets up the Cold War between Russia and America. And it does this in fairly obvious ways, with the America and the Soviet Union coming out of World War II as the two great superpowers. Immediately after the falling of World War II, Europe is partitioned, the Eastern Bloc is established with Soviet puppet states, and that's all in East Europe, places like Poland and Hungary. And then you have this battle between 
ideologies between capitalism and communism. And the other interesting debate that I won't go fully into today, but I think I find fascinating, in how the Pacific Theater sets up the Cold War is the dropping of the atomic bombs on Japan. And there was a moment in the in the 80s, I believe it was, where the scholarship had started to turn. Uh, it had been established by that time that the dropping of the atomic bombs was solely uh, a strategic military decision by President Harry Truman of America to prevent the need for an American landing on Japan, an American military landing. And this, in turn, would save lots of lives, both of Japan Japanese and American soldiers by avoiding this type of landing invasion. And as awful as the the dropping of the atomic bombs, as the atomic bombs was, it actually ended up saving lives. This is the argument. And then in the 80s, again, I believe it was the 80s scholars started to, to turn the tide on this argument, so to speak, by making the case that the dropping of the atomic bomb wasn't a military decision to bring about the end of World War II, but rather it was a decision solely to intimidate Soviet Russia as a precursor to an upcoming war or upcoming a potential upcoming conflict between America and the Soviet Union. Sort of a, hey, Russia, look what we have, so back off. And this was used by activists who didn't like and for understandable reasons, didn't like the dropping of atomic weapons on Japan because of the massive human and human scale, physical, psychological scale that the dropping of these massive weapons was on Japan. Scholars would tell you now, though, that having gone into the archives even further, there isn't much evidence that it was solely an intimidation tactic against Russia. Doing some speculation here, I'm sure that crossed... American military leaders' minds, but the evidence does seem to point that it was a military decision to save lives. Still, the development of the atomic weapon at the end of World War II, of course, plays a huge role in the Cold War, in the atomic arms race. So where does that leave us in the 20th century? I think if we had to do a broad overview, the key tension points would be World War I, the Versailles Treaty, which sets up World War II, the outcome of which sets up the Cold War. And those are the first three series that I'm going to be doing, and to project a little further, I'm also going to take a look at the Russian Revolution, which, of course, directly leads to Joseph Stalin, and then this sort of communism versus capitalism Cold War debate that I mentioned earlier. And the Russian Revolution happens largely because of the First World War, because, of course, because of more than that, but a lot of it had to do with Russian involvement in World War I leading to, or at least intensifying, that's a better word for it, intensifying the domestic strife within Russia within the first two decades of the 20th century. And that's moving forward. I'll be looking at the Russian Revolution in a couple months from now when I get to it. But to me, these are the... To, to again look look at the 20th century as a whole, these are the key points. And that's what I'll be doing with my podcast series. Again, the next series is the July Crisis of 1914. I'm looking how that sets up World War I. And ultimately, I'll be doing some reflection as well, how the July Crisis, 
how the July crisis sets up the century. So be on the lookout for my series on the July crisis uh, happening soon. It should be a few weeks from now that I get it going. I should have a teaser here pretty soon that I send out. But yeah, I would recommend listening to it just because Europe in 1914 was way different than we think of Europe today. You'll sort of see as, as the series goes along just the political systems that are different than they are today, the leadership structures, who's making decisions, but also just the tension between all of the countries. And I know that this state of affairs historically hasn't lasted forever, but we live in a Europe today that where countries relatively get along with one another. And at that point, at that time, at that time, it really wasn't that way. And you'll see how uh, these various treaties and alliances all came into play and leaders stepping up, stepping down, deciding whether to attack or not. And it's, it's all fascinating. And it all, as I've hopefully, I've been able to explain today, I hope I've been able to do this, it all directly affects this one month, sort of sets up the rest of the century. And it sets up the trajectory of, of Europe, of America, of East Asia, and uh, is very important to know. So I hope you'll I hope you'll listen. Anyways, thank you for listening today to this episode, uh, this bridge episode that I'm calling it. And I, uh, as always, please give me feedback if you have any questions. My contact information is in the description. Uh, I'm always open for improvements. I'm always open for suggestions on things to cover. And please, as always, please rate and review and subscribe and tell your friends. And hope you're doing well. Talk to you soon.